I'd be scared to do stand-up now because you go out and tell a joke about some political person that somebody in the audience doesn't like. Are they going to hit you? Are they going to shoot you? I mean, there are um, comedy clubs now that, like, you may have to go through metal detectors and they check you and you're not allowed to bring your phones in, all because initially, you know, uh, Chris Rock got slapped and then, you know, Dave Chappelle got attacked on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. And so I think everybody's nervous. You're nervous when you go to the grocery store. Is somebody going to take out a gun and shoot you? You know, it's a weird time. I was, uh, I did my one man show four or five years ago and I hadn't been on stage in a while. And uh, went and worked a club uh, in the Lower East Side of New York called the Slipper Room, and told a joke that apparently upset part of the audience. And yeah. as I was walking out, uh, one of the patrons said to me, "You know, I love growing up with you, and and it was fun to see you perform, but you really pissed off the audience when you told that one joke." And I said, "You know, that's it. Back in my day, that was called a joke." And everybody's so sensitive now; you can't, you know, offend this person, offend that person. You know, why can't we laugh at ourselves? But if you think about Don Rickles, who was one of the most successful comics in the history of show business, I always say, thank God he's dead because he couldn't work in this world mm. anymore. Is comedy supposed to make people, in your opinion, a little uncomfortable? Yes, of course. You know, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. Uh, it's supposed to make you think. But the bottom line is, we're here to have a good time and laugh. Hi, everybody. Mark Summers. Today, we're unwrapping Leah Delaria. And um, the question is, when I do the research, and on this one, I've really been obsessing. I've been working on this over a week. Normally, I don't spend that much time because I kind of know some of these people. And uh, my wife was sitting there saying, OK, who's the victim this week? And I said, remember on uh, Orange is the New Black, uh, she played the part of Carrie. And she said, is she playing Queenie on who? I said, yeah, that's one. She said, oh, I love her. So, OK, that made me feel fantastic. I, I, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm getting through to my wife now. She's a we're different demos than than most of these people want these days. But. But we're fully aware. Um, and so I would like to say hello to Leah Delaria. Uh, how are you today in New York? I'm, you know, Mark, as I always say, living the dream, just living the dream. Uh, dealing, you know, trying to get here to just even do this interview was one of those great New York driving me crazy, traffic everywhere, couldn't get a subway. I just had the cl a classic New York day. The L train was down always, you know, it's the whole thing. But I'm here. It you know, the thing about New York is you can't rely on anything. If you think it's going to take you an hour to get from point A to point B, you have to double that because you just don't know. You, you double it. And then since orange, I have to basically quadruple because if I step out of my apartment to even throw away the garbage, there's 20 people that want to get a picture with me. So <laughs> it's like But that's a nice, nice problem to have. Hey, not mad at it at all. I know, I know a lot of actors that just just bitch about this. It's like, excuse me, this is all I've ever wanted to do. I am yep. living my life stream out loud and in Technicolor. There's no way you want a picture with me. Everybody gets a picture. Who wants a picture? Come get a picture. Yeah, you're like Oprah. You get a picture. You get a picture. Everybody. <laughs> Everybody gets a picture, except Putin. He can't have a picture with me. Uh, don't even get me started on him. Unbelievable. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. So um, I'm going to be all over the place because I have so many things I want to talk to you about. Because when I did the deep dive, um, I found a, a CD that I got. It's, uh, That's a terrible uh, thing to say to a lesbian comic, you know, Mark. <laughs> when I did the right deep dive. <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, I listened to the live smoke sessions. OK, oh. I, I had no idea. OK, I, I knew you were talented in many ways, but then I got into the uh, rabbit hole of listening to tons of music. Uh, I, I, where did that come from? 
oh, my father was a jazz pianist. So I sang, that was literally the first thing I ever did as a performer. I used to go to the clubs with my dad and sing. So, so you grew it up just, in- it, it comes it, naturally. And so that started in Illinois and then you moved to New York at what point? I moved to New York when I got my first Broadway show, when I got on the town. At the time it was Shakespeare in the Park. So that would be 1997. Okay. So that's when I that's when I moved here and I've kind of never looked back. I've just stayed in New York. It's I preferred it 1000% to Los Angeles. Oh yeah. Hey, what what do you think? I um, years ago there was a guy by the name of Derwood Kirby who was a, an announcer worked with Gary Moore and I said to him, "Why do you live in New York and you don't live in LA?" And he goes, "LA's great if you're an orange." That was he hated it here. Okay? <laughs> And so I what is your, what is your, yeah, you just don't like the atmosphere, the energy, what, what is you know, it that bothers the, you? The, it's all of it, all of it. It's this, you know, this fake, we care about everything that they do there, you know, they smile and offer you sprouts as they stab you in the back with an ice pick. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like in New York, if somebody hates you, you know, they hate you. You, you know yeah. it immediately. And uh, I just like the directness of New York. It's a great city in the world. We have everything at our fingertips. I mean, literally anything you want can be delivered to your door. We got Broadway right there. We've got music right there. We've got film everywhere. It's just, you know, what can I say? I am a huge New York file. I love it here. It's still the best food anyway. Don't I like think, the winters. Right? I'll say yeah, the as, winter. As we get older, the winters suck and, and well, it's harder to yeah. deal with. Yeah, I was so, in London doing my new, uh, working on my new record um, over this weekend. So I missed the big sheets of ice that fell from the sky. Poor baby. Did you hear about this? Did you this? have trouble getting in and out? Yeah, I heard it was horrible. But yeah, my, my, uh, my I don't call her my girlfriend. I call her my young ward sent me <laughs> <laughs> lots of videos of it from our, you know, from the apartment. Sheets of ice just falling from the sky. Crazy. Why are you recording in London and not New York? I wasn't recording. Um, I'm working on it. The, my very longtime collaborator is British. She's a, oh. a British uh, musician, composer, arranger, producer. Um, and you said you listened to the live smoke sessions. She produced that. Um, she Beautiful. did all the arrangements. Um, she did most of the arrangements on House of David. Uh, which is by far my most successful record. And uh, we work, the collaborative effort that we do together, it's just kind of amazing. We both really can feed off each other and, and so on. So my next record is called Fuck Love, and it's all Love Gone Wrong songs. So we worked out the first, I think we worked seven of them. We, we still got, we need to pick five more tunes out, but we have seven that we worked on. Uh, we did the four shows at the Pizza Express, which is a great little jazz club in Soho on Dean Street. And uh, we learned a lot about what we did and we're you know, affecting that change. And now off to picking up the rest of the tunes we're gonna do. So. I know you're not the national spokesperson for gay people or for lesbians, but I'm going to ask a lot of questions that right. maybe people are going to think I'm politically incorrect. And, and at any point you can say, OK, Mark, shut the F up. OK, and but I need to ask Mark, these questions because everybody yes. already thinks I'm politically incorrect. So don't worry about it. <laughs> OK, when did you know that you were uh, gay? 
pretty much when I took my first breath, my first breath, you know what I mean? It's like, once you become aware of yourself as a human, um, I think you are aware of sexuality as well. And I was always, always attracted to, you know, girls, just always. So yeah, I have a friend I just of mine. kind of always known. A girl I worked with producing uh, some shows for Food Network, and I said, when did you know? And she said, when I was 10 years old and I saw Sound of Music, I fell in love with uh, Julie Andrews. And she said, I oh. never looked back. <laughs> uh, really? I worked with a guy I, at a radio for, Go ahead. For me, it was the, um, the te what's her name? I am 16 going on 17. Is, she's not Liesl. I forget that character's name. Yeah, but that was I Liesl. fell in love with her. Yeah. <laughs> when I was like 10, when I saw it too, was like, wowza. <laughs> <laughs> I worked with a guy in a radio station and he was gay and his name was Bruce. And he said, I wonder how my parents knew when I was born. I always used to love that line. And, and <laughs> Well, first of all, they named you Bruce. Yes, exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. So was there somebody that you looked up to when you were growing up and said, I, I identify with that person? There was a lot of people that I looked up to. I'm, you know, I, I always identified this is going to be, this is not gay at all, but uh, with Carol Burnett, I always identified with Carol Burnett because she could do all the things that I wanted to do and uh, felt that I could do. I really felt I could do them. So I had a, you know, to me, she was like one of the greatest role models that there was as, as a young comedian, you know, as a young female comedian who sings. Uh, she was the best role model you could have. Her, Bette Midler, you know, Lucille Ball, people like that. Um, but if you're asking me about gay people, there really, there wasn't any. There really weren't. You know, the first, you know, which is why person. I chosen to be so out, so that people what? behind me, that the kids behind me can see some. Look, you're not the only one. Here I am. In you know, I thought I was the only one for a long time. In 1976, a friend of mine was uh, writing for Paul Lind. He was getting ready to go out and do uh, a tour, okay? And he wrote a couple, the term gay wasn't even, uh, you know, in at that yeah. point. It was, you know, uh, some homosexual jokes. And Paul, and I'll do the worst Paul uh, impression, and he went, nobody knows I'm a homosexual, okay? And so he was living in, in another world, apparently, because we all knew, but you weren't allowed to talk about it back then. And you think about him on, you know, Bye Bye Birdie and said, was that a pretty good impression? Did he do good? <laughs> I was the worst. Uh, <laughs> I love also that Paul Lynn thought nobody thought what, nobody thought he was a homosexual is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Isn't that the best? He actually said that. Nobody yeah. knows I'm a homosexual. So, uh, you know, I just find that to be odd. <laughs> I know. What was he thinking, right? So, oh my God. you know, where do you think the turning point was when it became acceptable? Well, it's still not acceptable. You know, we're still fighting. Oh, I disagree with you. Why yeah, do you, why do you think I, it's not? Well, I think we've made many, 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 many strides. And frankly, I don't think any of us really care whether you accept us. You just have to respect what, who and what we are. Um, yeah. So, yeah, in my lifetime, I never thought we'd get as far as we've gotten. So that's that's a that's a big win for us. You know what I mean? But in the same token, when you're when you're disagreeing with me, Mark, realize they just passed a law in Florida that won't allow teachers to say they're gay, won't allow yeah. students to say they're gay. They have to report to their parent. I mean, what the fuck is that? You know, every time I think I go, oh, Florida, and then they do do something even worse. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're, 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 we're watching this pendulum swing back and forth right now for my people. And, uh, you know, 
we're, we're probably going to be out in the streets screaming and yelling again about what happened in Florida. I, I can't imagine we're just going to let it go by with nothing. I, I, it's, it's so insane. You know, I, I started to get interested in theater when I was 10, 11 years old in Indiana. OK, and mm-hmm. I, I've told this story on the podcast uh, once, but I wanted to take ballet lessons. And my macho father in Indianapolis said, my son is never going to take ballet lessons. Yeah, so the way I got even that. with him, I went to take baton lessons just to piss him off. OK, <laughs> So, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I absolutely. Love it. And so I got yeah. involved with theater. My first show was Bye Bye Birdie. I was one of the kids. And that was the first time uh, a, a man tried to grab me in an area that probably shouldn't have been grabbed at age 11 in Indiana. And I no. kind of wondered, what the hell is this you know, going on? Um, and um, I, I, I happen to be, I'm not going to name drop here, but I happen to be good friends with Neil Patrick Harris. And I always say Neil is the most macho gay man I've ever met. And a lot of people say I'm the gayest macho guy they've ever met. So, <laughs> you know, uh, you get labeled in super stupid ways. And although you say that it's still not ac- accepted, maybe because of the world we're in, because we're in the entertainment world, I don't think about it because you bring up Florida and there's a whole other point of view going on out there that people think, you know, gay people are, are strange and odd and, and, you know, shouldn't be allowed. I don't know how we ever overcome this, I guess, is the problem. How do you open up the minds of these you morons? Just, yeah, well, you know, we, we it's about their hearts and minds. And with with show like, for example, the show that I did, Orange is the New Black, really changed people's perspe- uh, perception and perspective on what it is to be a this kind, a masculine presenting lesbian, um, which more commonly known as butch. You know, which I have tattooed on my arm and was and was frequently shown uh, in the show. I mean, up until Orange is the New Black, every time they would write a character who was a who was a Butch Dyke, she was always dumb. She was always drunk. She was always beating up her girlfriend. Uh, you know, she was it was just always, you know causing bar fights and stuff like that. So um, they really changed that up when they wrote for me in Orange. My character was not only smart, she was the smartest person in that prison. And I don't think, and to to a human on that show, everyone says that, boo, smartest one in the prison. Um, and also they, you know, they played that, they used that idea that they were kind of scary when they first put me on and everybody was a little afraid of me. And then, you know, I did the crazy thing with the screwdriver and then everybody started to, to love her. And uh, and then they started opening up and letting you see what a cream puff she actually really was and was just behaving that way because she's trying to survive in prison. That's what you do, you know. So didn't they, um, uh, I think didn't have to presenting fight to get on us that like that helps. Say that again. But didn't you have a hard time getting on that show that you auditioned yeah. several times? <laughs> yeah. I auditioned, I auditioned for about three different roles and then they basically said that they didn't have a part for me and that they were going to write one. And I had a humongous hissy fit. My manager still talks about it. I was in his office and I stood there and I just screamed. If they're writing a show that takes place in a women's prison and there isn't a part for me, I fucking quit. I'm out of show business. I did. I quit. I was living in both London and New York at the time because I was doing all that work with Warner Brothers in London. So I moved all my stuff out of my New York place. You know, really? sublet it, did the whole thing, moved to London. I no sooner got off the plane than the phone machine. Remember, we all had phone machines. Oh, my yeah. phone machine had like 12 messages from my manager going, well, you've had your hissy fit and now you have to come back because they did write a part for you. 
Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the time, please, everybody always says they're writing a part for me. I'm still waiting for that part that were writing for me in Law and Order, and it's been off the fucking air for what, 20 years now? <laughs> So, no, you've been on Law and Order, haven't you? Um, I've been on SVU, but Law and Order, the original Law and Order, kept saying, "We are gonna, we love you. We're gonna write a part for you." They kept saying that to me. Then, I think I'm the only performer the in the history I guess of I'll show never business. Get that part. <laughs> I'm the only person in show business who's never been on Law and Order. I think it's unbelievable. I, I wasn't in it's New York crazy. long enough. Let's talk about it's your background. Crazy. Growing up Catholic mm -hmm. and Italian. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, being gay, what was that like? Did your parents support you? <laughs> well, you know, the thing about um, the basic uh, principle of, of Catholicism, you know, what the entire faith is based on is if you ignore it, it will go away. So <laughs> <laughs> that's basically Catholicism in a nutshell. Unbelievable. So it was really interesting with my parents because, you know, I, I came and they're Italian. So when I did, you know, tell them there was the whole Italian thing, there was the screaming, the, the yelling, the dinette through the plate glass window, you know. <laughs> no, really? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of screaming. And then uh, a month later, they forgot about it. We had to do the whole thing again. <laughs> Just, so now that they see you so successful, they would bring men home for me to meet. You know, no. like okay, remember that conversation where you threw the dinette through the plate glass window? So they thought no, they were convert, going to convert you. They, you know, they just no one understood what, what it was back then. I mean, we're 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 talking about the um, late seventies here. You know, like seventy eight, seventy nine. Um, so. Nobody was, it was different. It was just far, far different when I was, when I came out, it was illegal to be gay in every state of the union. So that's Jesus. your first clue. Um, but the, the interesting thing is I think uh, television, the great equalizer. So when I was the first openly gay comic on television in America, that kind of opened their eyes a little bit. I mean, they, they loved me. They weren't thrilled. They thought that they always thought it was, I had chosen it. You know, like this choice I made and uh, that I had chosen a very hard life. And, you know, but once I did television, it opened their eyes. And then when I got on Matlock for their generation to have me on television, standing next to Andy Griffith was the greatest thing <laughs> in the world. You know, so, so when you did our senior, they started to accept me and not and they accepted me. They accepted me and loved me until the day they died. When you did Arsenio, they must have been thrilled to see you on national television. Maybe not in the form that you were, but there you were. And you used the word butch. Uh, what was the term there that they found uh, offensive? Dyke. Found? I was saying dyke, dyke and fag and queer. I was using all of those. But Arsenio defended you and said, if that's what she wants to be, that's what she wants to be, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were so going to pull it. The lawyer were? said that they should pull it. Yeah, the lawyer said that they should pull it, that we would get in trouble. And Arsenio went to bat for me. Yeah. So was that the big springboard? Did that open up your career? Oh, God, yes. That was the what I call my first feeding frenzy. I've had three, um, which is quite unusual, I think. I've talked to other people about it. But that was the first feeding frenzy. When I did Arsenio, that meant, uh, which was watched all over the world. So every English-speaking country in the world watched, had Arsenio. Um, I, I then toured all over the world. You know, once that happened, I signed with a mm -hmm. I signed with an agency and started doing television. So I did like Friends and moved. I did Matlock Friends. I had I got a pilot deal with Fred Silverman. All that happened because of Arsenio, 
And then my second feeding frenzy was through our, through that feeding frenzy was when I did on the town. That's when oh, that was... New York just went kind of crazy. <laughs> what year was that? 97. 97. So, so what you did, I was watching. That was 97. <laughs> I was watching a Steve Edwards clip that you did here in Los Angeles, and you did the line, don't judge a butch by its cover. OK, yeah. Uh, what kind of reaction does that get or does it get any reaction anymore? Um, yeah, now people pretty much know who I am now. It's very rare when I when I first when I put my first record out for Warner. That was really interesting when I put out um, um, Play It Cool was the name of the record. And I had a big hit with the swing version of the Ballad of Sweeney Todd, believe it or not, which actually hmm. still enjoys much airplay on jazz radio. Um, That's great. But yeah, but people didn't know what I looked like. They just heard the song. They just heard me. So they would come to my concerts at these jazz clubs and you'd see them like looking at me like I'm the RCA dog, <laughs> like, like they're the RCA dog. And I'm like, they're like, what? How is that voice coming out of that body? You know, like that. And uh, but and then they would always there would always be this little attitude. You could see that they're like, well, what's this one going to do? And then I would just wow them. You know, I would just sing my face off and then make them laugh really hard. And uh, so no, no more. Everybody knows exactly what they're going to get when they get with me. So they know that uh, most people don't judge this butch by its cover. Well, you know what I loved? I was watching the Carnegie Hall performance. Uh, that must have been like uh, living in, you know, out of body experience. Unbelievable. First of all, I hadn't even gotten to Broadway yet. And it was like you walk in the door and Liza Minnelli's there and Audrey McDonald and Faith Prince. And then they show me to my, my dressing room, which you have to share because there aren't a lot of dressing rooms at Carnegie Hall. And I'm sharing a dressing room with Elaine Stritch. Oh my know? God. Yeah. It was just, I hadn't even been on Broadway yet. I'd just done it in the park. We were moving to Broadway. So yeah, I was a little crazy. And I remember walking through it going, oh my God. And Audrey McDonald coming out of her dressing room going, Oh my God, Leah, are you nervous? I'm so nervous I'm going to die. And I'm like, you have two Tonys. <laughs> well, you know, that's what stood she out to me. She now has four, you... I think. But she had two at the time. It's like, you have two Tonys? I'm dying You look so here. in control. No, you look like you were so comfortable. That's what I wanted to ask you. Uh, were you, or did you hide that, no. the, the nerves? Uh, I am most comfortable downstage center belting a D sharp. Nothing makes me happier. I'm so comfortable there. In fact, George Wolf used to, he would, he would laugh all the time. It would be, it became a running joke in rehearsal. I would be directed to go someplace like, but it, I, I would always somehow end up right center stage. <laughs> I love that. Rehearsing a scene or whatever. It's like, George was like, I don't even know what to do with you, Leah Delaria. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, George, it just happens. It's just automatic. I just want to be center stage. Well, let's, you know, uh, featured vocalist, 50th anniversary Newport Jazz Festival, uh, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, Chicago Symphony, Hollywood Bowl, Royal Albert Hall, Sydney Opera House. For the love of God, did you ever in your wildest dreams think you'd be doing all that? Um, I wanted to. Did I think I would be under my own terms, I mean, that's the thing you really got to think about here, right? Uh, it's uh, my terms um, that no, I wasn't sure that I could, that it would happen for me. 
Um, but this is, like I said, it's just, a, it's a, it's a dream come true. I've never had to be in the closet. I've always been exactly who I am and people let me do what I do everywhere. So I dug up a book here uh, that you wrote and it says, uh, oh my little, uh, yeah, it says when you're queer and you get home at the end of the day and close the door, there's part of you that goes, I made it. Nobody beat me up and nobody called me a dyke on the street. Today was a good day. Does that still apply four or five years after yes. you wrote that? It yes. does. Really? Yeah, it does for all of us. I mean, that's why I'm the executive producer of the Lesbian Bar Project. Um, and one of the reasons for me being so involved with this is that those are that's a safe space. You when you're in a dyke bar, uh, when you walk in, you're just all you just you, your shoulders just relax. You just release everything because you know that in this in this particular place, no one's going to harm you. No one's going to um, call you names. No one's going to beat you up for being different. You're with your your family. That's why it's important to me to keep the lesbian bars open. In um, there's only there's less than twenty dyke bars left in all of America. What seriously? Even in New York. I figured there'd be 20 in New York three alone. Three of the 20, three of the 20 are in New York City. So, so if, you're a, if you're a young lesbian and you live in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, South Bend, Indiana, what do you do? Good luck. Good luck. Really? Um, what I, I, they generally they DM me. <laughs> what they do is they DM me. <laughs> and I tell them to go online and find their closest support group, their the closest gay and lesbian center. Um, universities generally have stuff for people um, like that, you know. But in terms of that, and and it's it's they're just nowhere. They're just disappearing, and uh, that's why I started this uh, project to try to keep them open keep the remaining ones open, especially during the pandemic. We raised about a quarter of a million dollars to keep um, the lesbian bars open during the pandemic. But That's we still good. lost. We still lost a few. You know, I've, we talk about overcoming obstacles a lot on the show, but you're inspiring me. And I'll tell you why. Um, I grew up in Indiana, Midwest. You grew up in Illinois, Midwest. Um, mm -hmm. You were focused. I was focused. Here's the difference. And I'm not, not this is not self-deprecating. I really had zero talent. OK, I grew up <laughs> watching Johnny Carson and the Ed Sullivan show. And I, I would watch stand up comedians and I would say, I want to do that. But but how does a kid in Indiana get on television and do that stuff? So I did my research and found out that Johnny Carson was a magician. I figured, OK, maybe I can do magic. So there was a magic club in my junior high and that sort of opened the door. Uh, in 1967, with my confirmation class from my synagogue, we went to New York to find out about our Jewish roots. And I saw my first Broadway show, Fiddler on the Roof, and I thought, oh, my God, wow. how, do, how do I do that? OK, who was Tanya? Who did you see? Uh, Herschel Bernardi had just started. He replaced Zero Mostel. Oh, okay? God, you're so but lucky. Keep, keep in mind. Um, he was uh, fantastic. He, you were so he lucky. Was fan B. Arthur was Yenta the Matchmaker. Yeah. And uh, Bert Convey was uh, Muttle the Tailor. And Bette Mittler oh was God. one of the daughters. Okay. Yes. That, that was her first job. In yeah, that her job. first job. So I saw that and uh, I was, was inspired. She was Zidal, by the way. Pardon <laughs> she me? She was Zidal. She was Zidal. Yeah, that's right. Zidal. Yep. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, uh, I want to do that. So my whole life, I wanted to be on Broadway. And I went through a series of things. I was in a car accident. I got cancer. One thing after another overcame these things. 
And um, Bruce Valanche is a friend of mine. And I called up Bruce and he was doing hairspray. And um, we were having lunch and he said to me, um, stop talking about doing this already and, and just go out and do it. And so mm -hmm. I pushed some buttons and I got in and off. Uh, I, I started doing the summer stock. I did Grease. I did Vince Fontaine. And I met some guys who uh, Alex Brightman, who did uh, School of Rock and now he's doing Beetlejuice. And another guy by the name of Drew Gasparini, who's writing um, uh, Karate Kid. And they wrote a one man show for me. And we did it first at the Bloomington Playwrights Project in Bloomington, Indiana. And then we did the Adirondack Theater, Fe Theater Festival. And I thought to myself, I think I've died and gone to heaven. There's nothing better than doing live theater in front of, you know, an audience, whether it's 90 people or, or 590 people. And I Agreed. thought to myself, you know, I started this career way too late. I, you know, I still have the stream. I actually auditioned for Waitress uh, right before um, COVID uh, for the diner uh, yeah. uh, owner. And, and they told me I played it too young. I'm going to be I'm, I'm, I'm 70 years old. And they said they, I played it like I was a kid. I had too much lilt in my voice and I, I wasn't believable. But it was the first audition and I still have a hope. What gives you that energy, that determination to make this stuff happen? I'm, I'm looking to you for inspiration. I don't know. I, my, my determination, I think, is just because um, the drive to drive to do this is all I have. It's really all I know how to do. So um, I've been very lucky in, in a lot of ways that um, I mean, the, I, I killed the first time I walked out on stage as a stand up and all of my stand up friends are like, you did not. It was like I because nobody does. Nobody does. I killed. I was supposed to be on stage for seven minutes and they let me stay on stage for 20. It was like oh a my. situation. Where was they this? Let me, they, this was in San Francisco at a club called the Valencia Rose, which is no longer there. Um, but uh, they started doing these, the, what they called gay open mic comedy nights. It was specifically for um, queers. And I was like, I've always wanted to try stand-up comedy. I'm going to go try it. And I, my day job was I was a construction worker. Go ahead, laugh. Really? <laughs> That's what I was. I was a construction worker. But I was always, you know, I had done theater in high school. And, and I've done all that stuff in high school and all that. In college, I left and um, started doing improv comedy and worked around St. Louis on the Goldenrod Showboat and stuff like that. And then moved to San Francisco where I wanted to, what I was interested in doing was writing and directing and acting in my own plays, um, which is why I went to San Francisco. But my plays were always comedies. So I thought, why don't I just try stand up? It seems like it's, a, it's basically the same thing. So I went out and killed. And that was in April of 1982 and by September I had quit my day job and was supporting myself solely as a stand-up comic. I haven't had a day job since 1982. So what was your I, opening line? Do you remember? Um, that first time I came out, uh, you mean yeah. very, very, yeah. Well, it would be more about the introduction because for the first, I would say six months that I performed somewhere in that vicinity, uh, I didn't perform under the name Leah Delaria. I was called that fucking dyke. <laughs> so they would go, please welcome to the stage, that fucking dyke. And out I'd come and with my, you know, with my basically shaved head and safety pins and just anarchist 
raging and yelling, um, lots of screaming and yelling. I was a, a really one of those kinds of comics, very fast in your face, boom, 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 pow, pow, bang, 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 bang. And I noticed that people would start getting, you would see they would, you could see all the, they would die, the energy would die because they were laughing so hard for so long. That's when I started, that's when I put it music to give people a break and lull them into sort of a false sense of security before I started screaming dyke and fag and fucking them again. <laughs> so, so that, and it, I, that was what ni 1982 is still, and I've still, that's what I do. I still do exactly that. It's not broke, so I'm not fixing it. It works really well. It's just that now there's more music. I do a lot more music. <laughs> I started the comedy store in 76 as a regular. And uh, Robin came soon after. Did you ever work with him up there? No, but Robin would. Robin frequently would come in and, and see see my set. Like he would come, Did he? and he was always really lovely to me. He called me the lesbian Lenny Bruce. <laughs> Did he really? Oh, there's a compliment. Yeah. Holy mackerel! I thought it was a big compliment. Yeah, that is that's huge. Yeah, he's yeah. a very sweet man, and uh, obviously a major loss. Uh, so. Uh, who wrote, you wrote your own material, obviously, because nobody could have written yeah. your life. It's lies. not really written. I'm from that school of comedy. I'm from the Robin Williams School of Comedy. It's not like I sit down and write material. I have tons of friends who really write material. Like like Sandy B is one of my very close friends, Bernhardt. And uh, she works on her material. She works on you it. You know, Sandra Bernhardt. You see, her, you see her read it from the stage. She's, you know, doing her thing. I'm very comedy without a net fly by the seat of my pants. I just go out and I just start talking and, and I use the audience. I use what's going on in the world. I use, you know, all of that. Um, so I'm best more from the Robin Williams school of comedy, just crazy. Whatever comes to mind comes out of my mouth. At one point I had a lull in my career. I had many points I had a lull in my career, but at one point <laughs> I was <laughs> thinking of becoming an agent or a manager. And the one person I wanted to handle at the time was Sandra Bernhardt. I thought she was amazing. Uh, I know she Great. does the show on Sirius um, and, and uh, a, a unique act uh, stands out to me. Uh, and, and there's nobody, I, you know, I, I couldn't compare it to anybody else. Um, no, no, she's her own deal. You know, which is fantastic. And this has had this, I'm going to say now almost, maybe 40 year career uh, yeah. doing standup, which is, which is unbelievable. Who are the other uh, comedians uh, that uh, you admire? Oh gosh, uh, comedians I admire, man. Yeah. A, well, I love Margaret Cho. I've always been a huge fan of Cho's. Me too. Um, and another one who I think is just incredibly unique and, and great. And um, I, uh, I've, I've always, you know, I've always liked, you know, the, the big guys. I like all of them. I love Bill Burr. I think he's hilarious. You know, I've, I've always, always enjoyed Leno. I've always enjoyed Jay. Um, and, but I've always, I'm more of an, like an edgier person. You know, Lenny Bruce is one of my heroes. You know, George Carlin, one of my heroes. The best, you know right? I mean, Elaine Boozler, one of my heroes. It's I've never you know, understood why Elaine wasn't bigger. Mira. Say what? Uh, I, I never understood why why uh, Elaine didn't explode. She was always the funniest woman out there to me. You know, because she was she was doing what Bruce does. She was punching everybody's script and not getting any credit for it, but making good money doing it. Elaine was did that a lot. You know, and uh, yeah, it was lame was a tr tremendous loss. And yeah, again, very just excellent, funny, 
wonderful stand-up comic. Loved her. Absolutely loved yeah, her. There's so many good I, acts Jane out there. Garofalo, Dave Cross, you know, all these people that came at, at the same time that I kind of hit, the early 90s comics. So I was spending a lot of time with Andy Kindler, for example. Who is oh, really? The most insane human being. Yeah, yeah. And then Scott Thompson from The Kids in the Hall and The Kids in the Hall. I mean, I, I just think they are brilliantly funny. And so, in fact, Scott and Sandy and I often would do shows together. We often used to do shows together, the three of us. Do you watch The Amazing Mrs. Maisel? I don't. I watch Hacks, though. Oh, Hacks is brilliant, Hacks. right? Yeah, that's... Brilliant. that's I mean, that's supposed to be Joan, right? I'm assuming that that's Joan Rivers, too. But what I like about it is that what's different about Hacks than any other of these shows that present someone as a stand-up comic, Hacks shows the way comics really talk to each other. Yes, absolutely <laughs> you know true. I mean? It's so you true. Know I'm right. And every other thing I've ever seen, with it's like this, this is, comics are so mean to each other. This yes. is what we do. We don't pull any punches when we're talking to each other. We don't have to no. worry about political correctness. We don't have to worry about any of it. We say what the fuck we want to each other and just make each other laugh. And that's what I'm seeing in Hacks. It makes me so happy the way they talk to each other. It's yeah, so the honesty mean, is so clear. funny. It, and it's yes. so wonderful. It really, really is. So yeah. um, you do so many things well. You do stand-up, uh, you're a great singer, you're doing theater. What's the one thing you like doing more than any other of your talents, or do you like them all the same? Modern dance. I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, I really stop. I'm, it. A, yeah, I'm a school <laughs> of the Graham method, the Martha Graham method, and uh, I love to put on that leotard and just move. Um, I'd watch that. I think, way. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that my, I, more than anything, I think you hit the nail on the head. Nothing makes me happier than being in front of that live audience, being in front of that live audience, you know, just, and hearing, like I did Mama Mia at the Hollywood Bowl uh, a couple of summers ago. Mm -hmm. And there was this moment, um, I played Rosie. So my character sings Take a Chance on Me, which is probably one of their most well-known songs. And yep. you spend kind of, if you watch Mamma Mia, you do, if you're an ABBA fan, which I'm a huge, first of all, I'm gay, so I'm a huge ABBA fan. Um, <laughs> but uh, you spend the whole show kind of going, where's Take a Chance on Me? Where's Take a Chance on Me? And then there's this great moment where um, Rosie just gets a little bell tone and just goes, if you change your mind. And I did that. And 25,000 people all started screaming at the same time, Mark. Just yeah. screaming. And because of the property of sound, the scream, it went, it went back, you know, because of, the, because of the physical properties of sound. You can go back and then it came back up. And I had to wait so long for this applause. Really? Screaming. Yeah. Just because I was about to sing this song. Um, th that it just blows your mind. I get chills. I got chills I think about it. When yeah. I hear the story, I'm getting, yeah. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten chills a few times in my life that the, the Broadway, the Carnegie hall thing that you mentioned, I actually stopped that show. Um, so I just, they would, they will, would not go on with the show until I 
came out and took a bow. Oh and, my. Uh, yeah. And I was like, I just, I was like, I just stopped the show at Carnegie Hall. I'm Judy. I'm Judy. It was so exciting. <laughs> You've lived longer than Judy. (laughs) Unbelievable. Um, What obstacles do you think you overcame? I don't think I've over, I don't think I had, uh, well, I, okay. Yes. I see what you're saying. Um, The, I've had some very interesting obstacles industry wise in just, just because, you know, who I am, um, what I look like. Uh, There are certain ways that women are supposed to appear uh, in television and in public, uh, that I just don't, don't do. So, um, I think those were, I think those were the, the, the biggest obstacles that I had to deal with. And, um, that's why I've said, that's one of the things I'm most proud of is that I've been able to do what I do and, and haven't had to, um, compromise on anything that I think is important. You know, I can be I can be the girl next door, the, the the funny chick that can come in and you know that's me. I want to be the third banana on a television show. I don't want to be for I want to be that the person that lives next door has only two two scenes and always gets the blow at the end of the scene. You know what I mean? Right. That's like we're having showbiz lingo going on here for everybody else out there. What that means? But I get it. Is I always get the punchline that ends the scene. It's like and then you collect your paycheck and you have none of the responsibility and just, you know, get the heck out. Right. Well, that's what Who's I the character? got with Orange. What's the character on TV Orange? that you would compare that to who, who you would like to do? The lob, the maid in two and a half men. Perfect. It's a yeah. perfect. Do you know what I mean? That's exactly always had the best I mean. lines. That, always, always never more than two scenes in the show. You know, sometimes it wasn't even an episode. It's okay. You know, she's getting paid. You know, they're getting paid, <laughs> whether they're in it or not. It's the way it works. So, <clears throat> yeah, no responsibility, all the laughs. I'm, I would love that. Do young performers uh, come to you and ask you for advice now? Yeah. yeah. I actually, t- I go to universities and, and talk um, a lot. And I actually, I don't know if you, I just did Conan's podcast, Conan, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Um, cause Conan and I really like each other. We're pals. And, uh, and, uh, he, we were talking about this because he's like, I hate it. Just, he hates going to the universities because the kids are so politically correct now. And I've had this, I've heard this before. And I was like, you know, asshole, it's your job. It's your job to go to that university and make them think. That's your job. You know what I mean? And I I feel that that's my job. So I'm going to go to universities every time and I'm going to talk to them. And I, we, I do this, I do a speech or a masterclass or whatever. And always um, they ask me advice, always. And I always tell them basically the same thing, that um, you have to love yourself first. You have to love yourself because by loving yourself, you then will accept that you're good at what you do, right? You have to believe in yourself, which comes from loving yourself. And then you have to have stick-to-itiveness. You you know, you'll never make it if you quit. I know that uh, that Seinfeld and uh, Chris Rock stopped working colleges for the politically correct situation. Um, I speak at colleges as well. Here's what I find. I'm calling them pussies right now. You're pussies, both (laughs) of you. But here's the deal. Um, These kids are not prepared I'm, I'm not going to sound like a dinosaur, but no, I don't find the passion in these kids 
that that you and I probably had. Uh, they're not focused. This is what I find when I speak. Um, and I don't think the colleges helped them. I was uh, doing some classes at USC and uh, the dean came and asked me to teach a class. And uh, they said, what would you teach? And I said, how to get a job. And they said, oh, I'll never allow that to happen. We have a whole foundation here that does that. I said, no, you don't. They, you know, you don't look for a job in show business or any business your senior year. You start looking your freshman year, okay? But nobody tells them that information. And how do you go about it? And how do you put those um, you know, groups together so you can network? And I just find that the colleges are lacking. And so I get very frustrated. I appreciate mm -hmm. what you're doing and I applaud it. And because of COVID, I obviously haven't been out to colleges for the last two and a half no. years. Me either. You know, but I just I get um, depressed by talking to these kids uh, for better or worse. I speak to some colleges that have parents who apparently have a lot of dough and can spend three or four hundred thousand dollars for a four year uh, education. And so a lot of these kids don't have um, I don't think the desire because uh, they think daddy's going to write a check and hand it over to him. And that, that's the thing that disturbs me. And as far as comedy goes, I was playing a place called the Slipper Club down in the Lower East Side oh, right before I went and right. did my one man show. OK, and uh, I did magic for years at the Magic Castle. And I, I did this one joke. This is now five years ago. Um, and um, I purposely would bring somebody up on stage who was Asian if they were in the audience. And I had him do a math thing. And it, it worked out that they no matter what they did, the math didn't work. And I said, oh, I thought you people were supposed to be good at that. OK, politically incorrect now. OK. And as I was leaving, somebody came up to me and said, we really enjoyed watching you, but you really pissed off the audience when you did that politically incorrect humor. And I said, you know, back in my day, we used to call it a joke. Um, yeah. you know, the thing about it is, uh, you know, Jewish jokes, Polish jokes, whatever. We got away with everything. When I started at the comedy store, when we're not on this, well, before we sign off, I'm going to tell you a thing that I used to do that always would save me and get the laugh. But um, the, the point is, everybody is so narrow with what their sense of humor is that you, you just can't have fun like we used to. When you started in 82 and I started in 76, you could get away with anything. You can't do that yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It's but I, on the other hand, I wasn't working in the clubs. I didn't work the clubs until after I did Arsenio. I was working, I was working in gay bars and I was working in small theaters and um, it, things called women's music festivals, which I'll explain to you at some point, Mark. We don't have enough time. But um, so I was always working for um, this is why I always call you guys these guys pussies that won't go to universities because of political correctness. Can you imagine I had to perform for rooms filled with lesbians filled? You think that was I wasn't kept politically correct or they weren't booing me and yelling? Really? Me? I mean, I've my entire career has been dealing with these assholes and me calling them assholes. Yeah, <laughs> my entire fucking career. It's like, you know, I did this thing and it's, I, I'm with you here, right? I, we, again, we used to just call these jokes. And, yeah, they uh, were jokes. You know, I did this, I did this thing recently where I was, um, I was in a, I was in a gay bar and an, a young man came in and he was very excited to see me. And he was very, you know, he was had, we used to call them glitter fairies when I, when I was in San Francisco in the eighties. So he had glitter everywhere and he was wearing nail polish and I just loved him. We were just laughing and I decided to do a little uh, thing for my Instagram, right? Instagram live. So I put my phone up there and we're together we toast. And I said, here we are just a couple of gender non-conforming individuals, whatever the fuck that means. 
means, I say, <laughs> right? And I post it. I tell you not even five minutes goes by and I get a DM from some uh, from tr uh, trans person. Yeah, you owe the trans community, entire the entire trans community an apology. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And I responded, Yes, either that or you have no sense of humor, which is more likely since we all know you started out as a lesbian. <laughs> oh, that's great. Did you get a response from that? I would get so much trouble for this. <laughs> I don't care. It's like, you know, we everybody needs to just take a chill pill, take a big breath, and let's yeah. all come at each other from a place of love. If you're Jewish, right? Yep. Right. Okay. So, Mark, what, you know, I'm not, what, am I going to go, you're privileged, straight, white guy, but, 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 you're fucking Jewish, okay? Yep. So, yep. Um, you know, people spit on you because you're Jewish. People won't yes. allow you to come into their golf clubs because you're Jewish. You know what I mean? It's like yep. we all, we have, there's a shared uh, oppression that all disenfranchised people have. And if we would just start to come at each other from a place of knowledge and look, look at me. Look at me. I get called sir every day of my life. Do you really? Right? Yes. Oh, honey, the worst was in the gynecologist's office. That was. Oh, come on. Tell me. <laughs> that was a joke, son. That was a joke. But yeah, I do get called sir every day of my life. Every day of my life. And what life. do you say to these people? What do you say? I laugh. It, it, I always take it with a sense of a grain of salt and a sense of humor. Gender to me means fucking nothing. So yeah. I don't care. You call me sir, I'll answer to it. You call me ma'am, I'll answer to it. You know, I don't particularly like ma'am. Why? I they call me empress. I prefer empress to ma'am. <laughs> Just, you know, ma'am makes me feel old. And when I'm yeah. in the South, it's like, please don't call me ma'am. <laughs> Just makes Did me you have feel any really old. Don't like it. Did you have any brothers and sisters? Oh yeah. Hello, Italian Catholics. Oh yeah, of that makes I sense. Brothers right? and sisters. What am I thinking? Yeah, I know. How, 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 Come on. How, how many brothers and yeah. sisters? I had two brothers and two sisters growing up. And tell me so about there were their five lives. Of us. Um, well, one of my brothers has died. Uh, he died very young. He was born with a congenital heart disease. So, um, I lost, I lost Bradley when I was 18 years old. Mm, sad. Um, yeah, I know. I hate it. Um, my brother, Richard is now retired. He worked for, um, what is the airplane makers in St. Louis? I always get this one. It's like, it's not, it's not Lockheed. Boeing? It's the other one. What? Boeing? Boeing? No, nope, it's not Boeing. It's huh. like blah and blah. But he worked there his entire life. And now he's okay. now retired. Um, his daughter, who's an emergency room nurse, um, got pregnant. So uh, he, with with her husband. So he and his wife sold <laughs> sold their house and moved next to the kids. Well, in this my. tiny little town of Rolla, Missouri, where my niece works as, and works the entirety of COVID as an emergency room nurse so, oh my. Um, and is still doing it. Yeah, she's got some stories. Um, so my sister Mary worked for the Belleville News Democrat, the newspaper in the town, which I grew up. She started there as a paper stuffer. So what that is, is they would have all the, you know, coupons and stuff. 
magazines, whatever. They got stuffed in the paper. She started there. And when she was asked to retire, when the, news, when the bottom fell out of the newspaper market, yep. she was the editor of both the obituaries and I think the want ads. So she worked her way up to an office from being a paper stuffer, one place her entire life. Wow. Now she and her husband live, live by a lake in Kentucky because Belleville got too big. <laughs> oh my God. But and he's a hoot. Her husband's a hoot. He's a professional fisherman. You know that you, you know when you turn on your TV on Saturday morning and it shows guys, you know, competing? Yeah, casting. Yeah. That's what he does. He's a professional fisherman, which is fantastic. That's and then amazing. My oldest sister, Thana, uh, is, uh, deals with the school bus system in uh, St. Louis. She works in the office. She's a, like a higher up in sending school buses to different you know, school districts. And what do they think about you? Oh, they all love me. We all love each other. They're, they couldn't be more excited. Every time I do something on television, they're just beside themselves and they're all excited about POTUS. I'm sure my whole uh, family's coming for the opening of POTUS. On this, you can rely. Uh, um, and how much success did your parents get to see? A lot. They saw a lot of, they lost, uh, my, my pop passed right before Orange. So oh. that this last little chapter of the crazy world fame, um, neither one of them got to see, but um, the, the, you know, they, they saw everything up to orange basically before they passed. Nice. You know, I always mm -hmm. talk about, um, I, I was a fan of uh, talk shows growing up as a kid and uh, I was watching Merv once and he had Bob Hope on for an hour. And at the end of the hour, he said to Bob Hope, if you could point to one person who made you successful, who would it be? And Bob Hope pointed at himself yeah. and said, I did it. How do you, uh, do you feel the same way? Yep. One person, me. Yeah, yeah. I do. Very because I always say, one because of my I had lines a thousand are... people in line in front of me telling me no. I heard no more. I, you hear no so much in this business. We know that. But I heard no. You can't sing and do stand up. You sit all the whole time. Yeah. You can't sing and do stand up. You can't work blue. That was the other one. Yeah, blue. There's Daffy a trivia Rollins. here anymore, right? You know Daffy Rollins, right? Of course. He, he, yeah. Of course. He wanted he wanted to talk to me, wanted to manage me. And then he goes, Yeah, but you can't work blue. And I went, Well then you can't be my manager. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Rollins and Jaffe owned everything and they were the yeah. the geniuses, but Woody Allen yeah. in the whole career. I, yeah, yeah. I start my uh, college uh, lectures by saying nobody got up this morning and said, I got to go get Mark Summers a job today. OK, no. it's up to you to go figure out how to do that. And I think the sooner you realize that nobody really gives a shit about any of us, except maybe a couple of our siblings and our parents, uh, mm -hmm. you're on your own. And until you yeah. figure that out. Uh, yeah, you're right. The word no. I was up for so many jobs and saying uh, close so many times um, and then they fell through. And um, I've always said this, and I mean it 100%. I've gone through, I don't know how many agents. Not one agent has ever gotten me a job. They've negotiated the deals, but I was the mm -hmm. one who always made the de uh, deals you know, happen. I have a feeling you're that same person. You get up, you're oh, motivated. Yeah. There's something you want. You keep your eye on the ball. You may poke and prod your agent, manager, and publicist, but the bottom line is, if it wasn't for you, it would have never happened. I don't even have an agent, Mark. I do everything through Jeremy Katz, my manager. Really? David, I'm applauding David, you. I did Boys from Syracuse with David Hyde Pierce 
98, 99. Wow. I can't remember exactly when it was. And, um, you know, and I was loose and, uh, he was one of the twins. We, you know, we, we worked, we sang a song together. We did this whole thing. And he said two things to me, which were fascinating. One was about his, cause he wasn't out yet. And he said, he said to me, Leah, my life's a, my life is an open book. Just don't ask me to read it to you, <laughs> which I love. Unlike Paul Lind, he knew everyone knew he was gay and he didn't feel that he had to confirm it. Um, but the other thing he said was, I've only all I have is a manager and it's all I've ever had. And and I would never have an agent as as long as I live. And I found my manager, Jeremy Katz. Um, he was actually my agent's assistant at William Morris. And when he left William Morris and went into management, I glommed on to him with him and have never left. It's a, it's, I, I'm telling you, it's a great, it's a great deal. And I say it to everybody, get yourself a good manager and you don't need an agent. You know, I, I admire that. And uh, I'd love to meet Mr. Katz because he's obviously uh, very bright. Uh, and I'm glad you got, how many years you've been working together? Well, since 1997. Wow. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, this has been the fastest hour I have done, and I've uh, laughed more than I've ever laughed uh, on any one of these things. I've learned a lot. You're an inspiration. I couldn't be happier for your success. Thank you so much for participating in this, and uh, good luck. Mark Summers Unwraps is a production of Believe Limited, created by me, Mark Summers, and Jessica Richmond, produced by Keith Corneluk and Jessica Richmond. Executive produced by Patrick James Lynch and Ryan Geelan. Post-production support from Joshua Sterling Bragg and Believe Limited. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you really love it, why don't you leave us a rating and a review? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Mark Summers Unwraps.